right, last Sunday for a while that we'll be reading uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, yeah, we've been in this passage for several weeks, and uh, it's kind of the classic text about what Christians often refer to as spiritual warfare. Um, but what I've been trying to help us see is that really uh, this is just basic Christianity. I mean, spiritual warfare, we sometimes think of it as being some unusual, spectacular thing that we're supposed to engage in. And I think for the Apostle Paul, this is just... This is just life as a Christian following Jesus until he returns. Um, from now until Jesus makes all things new, the Christian life is characterized by conflict. It's characterized by this battle with spiritual evil. And the call for us is, is not to go out and defeat the devil because, remember, he's already been defeated. And it's not to go out, like, picking fights with demons because, I mean, it's a sure thing that, like, the, the forces of spiritual evil out there will bring the fight to us. Um, the call is to stand, and Paul says you do that having put on the whole armor of God. It's the armor of God that gives us strength to stand against the devil's schemes. And so, so standing against the devil, uh, like how do we do it? We do it by living the Christian life. Um, we do it, like it's, it's basic. It, uh, spiritual warfare happens in the everyday and ordinary. It's about how we live our lives moment by moment in fidelity to Jesus. Here's how uh, one author puts it. I read this and I thought, yeah, this is, this is what I want to say. Uh, he, he says, spiritual warfare is what you and I do when nobody else is looking. Will I be honest or will I lie? Will I be faithful or will I compromise? We stand or fall on these decisions. Fidelity hangs in the balance every moment of every day. We need the armor of God because we are going to wake up tomorrow and must decide whether we will live in fidelity to our marriage. We have to decide if we are going to be patient with our children, whether we will work hard for our employers even when it's a drag, whether we can worship with people who are messed up without judging them and casting them away. So like every now and then, you know, a hawk might fly over and drop a snake on you while you're mowing the yard. Uh, but... Uh, for, the, for most of the time, the battle Paul envisions, I think, is just ordinary Christianity. It's the ordinary Christian life. 
we can expect conflict. We're called to stand in the conflict. And the resources that God gives us for the conflict are not like complicated formulas or special phrases and techniques. What God gives us, Paul says, is God himself. God gives us God. So Paul doesn't say, if you want to be able to stand in the battle, here are all the things you need to to say, or here are the things you need to pray, or here are the techniques to guarantee your success, here are the proper proper methods to ensure victory. No, he says, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. And then Paul goes through all of these various pieces of equipment that a Roman soldier would have worn. You know, this is one of Paul's prison letters. Some speculate that he's like standing next to a Roman soldier, uh, probably not suited up for battle, but, but probably jogging his mind to think through, like, oh yeah, Roman soldier, armor, let's go. Let's write Ephesians. Um, we've looked at all but the last two pieces of armor, and uh, let's just look at these this morning, uh, the helmet and the sword. So first, the helmet. Paul connects the helmet with salvation. The implication here is that uh, this is something we have, something we have. We don't have to fret about it. Do I have it? Do I have the helmet of salvation? Is it really mine? Paul is saying, yes. Yes, church, you have it. Salvation is God's gift to you. Um, You know, this is really central to the letter of Ephesians uh, from the very opening in chapter 1. There, um, you might remember if you're familiar with the the letter that Paul declares, in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I mean, and then he goes on to say that in Jesus, we have redemption and forgiveness, and we've obtained an inheritance. And, and he's talking about all of these things as gifts that have been given. Uh, Um, And and all of that because of the great love with which God has loved us. God's made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sin. I mean, Paul says, without qualification, you have been saved by grace. You have been saved by grace. That's That's God's gift to you and me that he saves us. He rescues us. What has he rescued us from? Um, there are lots of ways that we could talk about what we're rescued from. I mean, the Bible highlights three really big enemies that God saves us from. Um, talk, the Bible talks about being rescued from sin, being rescued from death, and then being rescued from the devil, which we've been talking a lot about. But these are like, these are like the big dark powers that, re- that really threaten us. And, and, and the point of having this helmet of salvation is that we don't have to fear them. Salvation means... None of them gets the last word. Like, we don't have to live now under their power. And, and so that's really significant salvation, that you have been liberated from these really big enemies. Um, but remember, the salvation the New Testament envisions is, is bigger. It's, it's much bigger. Um, often the bigness of salvation, uh, the full scope of it, gets lost in some ways uh, that the church talks about it. It's pretty common to talk about salvation and to think about salvation being mainly um, this transaction that happens between individuals and God so that uh, someday when the individual dies, that person's soul maybe gets to go off and be with God in heaven forever. Um, We talked about this quite a bit during our Hope Deep Dive, but just to refresh your memory, like the Bible's view of salvation is just so much bigger than that, so much broader. Um, 
For example, back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul tells us that God's plan is nothing less than to unite all things in Christ. You know what all things means in the Greek? All things. <laughs> it just means all things. Like, all things God plans to unite in Jesus. The plan isn't just to save you and me from sin and death and the devil. God's plan is to rescue his entire creation, to save the whole world from sin and death and the devil. Later in the letter, Paul tells us that um, central to God's plan for salvation is this new community that God is bringing together around Jesus, like th this church composed of all kinds of different people from all kinds of different places and backgrounds and experiences and united around Jesus. And it's through this new community, the church, that God plans to make his salvation known to the rest of the world. So that's the helmet of salvation we have. I mean, from all eternity, God has set his love on you. He's brought you into his family. He's brought you into this new community. And through us, he wants to show the world the goodness of his salvation. We have all of that. It's just a gift. We have it, and we have to put it on. We have to put it on. By the way, this is true of all the armor. Um, the point is not to have it. The point is to wear it. You know, there's a difference. If I'm in battle and an enemy is attacking me, it doesn't matter how good my armor is if it's like hanging in the closet and I'm sleeping in my PJs, right? Like the, the greatest armor in the world does you no good if in the heat of battle you're running around in fig leaves. In order for the armor to protect us and help us and be of any use to us, family, we've got to be wearing it. We've got to be wearing it. And so Paul says, put it on. He says, put on all of it. Put on the whole thing. Put it on. Think about salvation. Why isn't it just enough to have salvation? Why do we have to put it on? Um, not because if we don't put it on, we'll lose it. I mean, the way I read Ephesians 1, like, Paul's just declaring the givenness of the gift. It's yours. So, so it's not because we risk losing it if we don't put it on. We have to put it on, I think, because one of the devil's main goals, like one of spiritual evil's main goals, is to call God's salvation into question. Not just for you as an individual, but for like communities, for cities, for, for nations, for the whole world. The devil wants to call salvation into question. Remember, um, the devil opposes God kind of at, at every point. And so if God's plan is to uh, unite and heal all things in Christ, well, then the devil wants to work disunity and decay. And if God wants to create a new community around Jesus with no dividing wall of hostility, well, then the devil puts on his little masonry outfit. And, you know, I figure he's not a great mason, but he can erect some kind of wall of hostility where there should be none. So he wants to bring some kind of division into the um, Christian community. And if the good news of your salvation is that God has rescued you from sin and death and the devil, well, the devil just wants to, like, call all of that into question at every point. And, and let's be honest, he has some material to work with. I mean, rescued from sin? Really? Doesn't look like you're rescued. Looks like sin is still a very present reality in your life. It looks like sin still has some power over you. Saved from death? Like, don't kid yourself. Everybody dies, and you're going to die, too. You're not saved from death. Rescued from the devil? 
well, how do you like this fiery dart? How do you like that fiery dart? I mean, the fiery darts just keep coming, don't they? What kind of salvation is this? See, that's the devil speaking. Um, the devil specializes in calling God's salvation into question. Like, has God really rescued you? Is God really rescuing the world? Um, does this look like the kind of world that's being saved? You know, at least some of the helmets that Roman soldiers wore had visors, you know, little shields that would come down to cover the eyes. And I'm reluctant to make too much of this because I doubt that Paul had this in mind exactly. But let's just say that your helmet of salvation does have a visor. Um, what would that mean? What, what that would mean is that when you're wearing it, you cannot forget the gospel of salvation. Because uh, everything you look at is looked at through the filter of that gospel. It becomes the lens through which you view the rest of the world. Everything about your experience gets interpreted through the lens of salvation. And so the devil shows you your sin, but you see it through the helmet. And you're able to say, yes, it's there, but God has rescued me from the penalty of it. And he is rescuing me now from the power of it. And one day, one day, God's promise is to entirely rescue me from the presence of it. Sin isn't going to be a thing one day. It's going to be gone, taken care of. When When we wear the helmet, we see our sin as part of this much larger story of what God is doing to rescue and heal the world. And, it, and it's the same with the other powers that threaten us. I mean, think of sickness and death. A while back, um, I read this really good little article by a guy named Andrew Wilson called, um, the, the title of the article was, God Always Heals. And immediately my thought was, no, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, but the point of the article was, oh, yes, he does. And I thought, well, I could just go back and forth arguing with him, or I could just read the article and see, see, see what he has in mind. Um, what he points out is that you can see that God always heals, but you can only see it when you have the big picture in view. You can only see it when you're looking through the visor, the helmet of salvation. God always heals within the context of the whole story. And so maybe God will heal you through the working of your white blood cells to remove an infection, right? I mean, that kind of healing is happening just all the time. And do you think that that happens without... Um, God's orchestration without God's like good design and plan. I mean, that is God healing you. Or maybe God heals you over time as a broken bone just gradually mends and becomes stronger, maybe even stronger than before. Or maybe God heals you just instantly when a brother or sister in Christ is faithful to lay hands on you and pray for your healing. Or maybe God heals you in the end after you've died and gone into the ground. He raises you in glorious new life. I mean, maybe that's when you experience your healing. Um, but the, you see, like one way or another, um, this author's point was, God is going to heal you. God always heals. Um, the article ends with this. God never says no to a request for healing. He, he either says yes or he says not yet. And the not yet is hard because the not yet might mean in the new heavens and new earth. Um, but if the Christian story is true, family, like, don't you see, like, that's what we're made for? Like, that is, th- that is the reality that, I mean, go read Lewis, but, like, it's just so much realer than this one. Like, the blades of grass there will slice our feet off. 
So it's, 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 a, it's, a, um, it's a real world. It's, it's more tangible. Um, wearing the helmet of salvation means just remembering that, trusting it, learning to view all of your experience through this, interpreting your experience through that lens. It means remembering that there's, already, there's, there's always this, um, what, what some people call the already and not yet tension about salvation. Like we've already been saved. Scripture talks about salvation in the past tense. By the way, did you know that um, in Greek and Hebrew, the word for salvation is just, it's the same as the word for healing? And it's, it's interesting that like that gets translated into different ways depending on context. But it just, it's just the word for healing. But we've already been saved. We're currently being saved. And then at the same time, the fullness of our salvation lies in the future when Jesus returns and makes all things new. When I don't put my helmet on, my tendency is to become uh, really cynical and really passive because uh, this world of ours doesn't always look like the kind of world that is being saved. And I, and I look at like, all the issues in our city that just seem to be so um, tenacious and persistent, issues of idolatry and injustice, and it's like, ah, oh, our communities don't always look like the kind of communities that are being saved. And when I look at my own life, I say, ah, sometimes the life of Kevin Germer doesn't look like the life of someone who is being saved. And my instinct, when I'm not wearing the helmet, is just to start to be cynical and to doubt the reality of it. And if I'm doubting the reality of salvation, if I don't trust it, if I have no confidence in it, see, I think what Paul would ask is, how do you expect to stand against spiritual evil? Like, how do you expect to stand if you're not wearing this helmet? See, I know, like, when I'm not wearing the helmet, I don't stand. I just, I just run for the fig leaves or put on the PJs and get in bed. I won't stand. And if I'm not wearing the helmet, I also won't take up the sword. And so let, let's talk about the sword a little bit. The sword, Paul tells us, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And, and so the idea is not that the spirit is the sword. The idea is that the spirit is the source of the sword. And the sword is God's word. The sword is the word of God given by the spirit. Now, what word is this? What word is this? You know, one common view is that this is talking about the Bible. But I don't think that's likely, uh, for one thing, because the New Testament, you know, I mean, it's still being written when Paul writes this. And it's not even close to being canonized. So if Paul is talking about the Bible, he would have been just talking about the Old Testament, um, not the same Bible that we're talking about. But also, I mean, another reason that I don't think this is uh, scripture per se is that um, Paul uses a Greek word that typically has the sense of a word spoken at a particular time and place, like for an occasion. It's like an occasional word. Another common view um, on this is that the word of God here is a word that we're supposed to use to speak against the devil during spiritual conflict. So like, you know, you can imagine some kind of like power encounter maybe with a demon or with spiritual forces of evil. And, and this is a word that the spirit supplies to speak against uh, that evil. And that kind of makes sense because after all, the word is a sword and the devil is our enemy. And so it makes sense that we would attack him with the word. But I am persuaded that this isn't quite right either. Um, within the context of Ephesians and really all of Paul's letters, um, 
when Paul uses this phrase, the word of God, he's pretty much always referring to the gospel. Um, he's talking about a word of good news that awakens faith in the person who hears it. Here's how one of the commentaries I'm reading puts this. It says, uh, and this is, I'm, I'm persuaded by this view. He, he says, what is in view here is not some ad hoc word addressed to Satan as though what we speak against him will defeat him. Uh, rather, it is the faithful speaking forth of the gospel into the realm of darkness so that men and women held by evil might hear this liberating and life-giving word and be freed from evil's grasp. See, I think that, I think that's probably right, that the word of God Paul has in view here is just, it's the good news of Jesus. It's the good news about Jesus and all that Jesus brings. But the emphasis here, rather than being on scripture, like words on a page, the emphasis is on the spirit-empowered words of God's people as they speak faithfully into the lives of others. And so you can see maybe how... Um, how the sword and the helmet are really closely related because the word of God, uh, it's like the main way that God alerts people to the reality of salvation. He does it through the faithful speaking of his children. He does it as we speak the truth in love to one another. Um, it's a weird strategy, isn't it, on God's part? Like, it's a little bit crazy I, that, that God entrusts people like you and me and he trusts a community like ours uh, with the good news of his salvation. He says, like, this is the way the message about Jesus is going to get out. Just through you. Through me. Um, here's how uh, Leslie Newbigin puts it. I should have gotten this on the screen because it's too long as usual. <laughs> but I'm just going to read it. He says, God's nature is love, and salvation means being restored to life in the love of God and in love with his children. But, he says, love only exists in actual concrete human relationships. Love in general is nothing at all. Right? There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Uh, true love means care for real people, like my sister, my coworker, my neighbor. We have to give and receive love in dealing with actual men and women, not just those whom we choose, but those whom God gives to us. So it is that near the center of God's plan for salvation is an actual community of men and women called by God for this purpose. We are not called because we are better than others, nor are we called because God wants to save us only. We are called in order that through us, God's love may reach others and all people be drawn together into one reconciled community. Um, it just occurs to me reading that again that might not make sense without the bigger context. So Newbigin wrestled a lot with um, what he calls the scandal of particularity. He says, uh, isn't it remarkable that God's plan to save the world is so particular and historical? Like he chooses, he chooses one people, one people group, which basically, if you read the biblical narrative, like gets narrowed down to just one man, Jesus, who is like the true Israel, the faithful Israelite. And then from this one human individual, the scope of salvation then begins to spread out 
to all the ends of the earth. And, and Newbegin is just like wrestling with, why like that? See, if you have a gospel that says that salvation is basically about individuals coming into relationship with God so that they can go to heaven when they die, that, way, that form of salvation makes absolutely no sense. Like, like, God should just, I mean, if you're, if you're smart, if you're smart, if you're as smart as God, I don't know, if God were smart, no, that's a horrible line, but, um, <laughs> but like, the way God would do it in this, con- he would just, you know, reveal himself directly to each individual, and then the individual would, would respond, but if what God is wanting to do is knit together human communities, then this way of doing it makes perfect sense, like, and, and think about your own life, right, like, you're a Christian today, if you are a Christian, because uh, at least one person, but probably numerous people in relationship with you were faithful to share the good news about Jesus and to love you closer and closer to Jesus. And that, in the process of hearing the gospel and learning the gospel, community is being formed. And Newbegin says, well, if that's the goal, and according to Ephesians 3 and 4, like, that is the goal, um, like Jesus dies so that this new, hum, new human community can be formed. If that's the goal, then this, this kind of what might strike us as scandalous particularity, like, makes sense. Makes sense. Might have confused things more. This is why I should write all this down. All right, stick to the script. All right, back to the script. Um, uh, This is the Spirit's good work in, in your life and in the life of our community. And so I wonder, um, who, will you, who will you share the love of Christ with this week? Who will you remind of the salvation um, that is theirs in Christ? Like, God is going to be sending us into all kinds of different nooks and crannies around the metro Richmond area. Um, different places of work, different neighborhoods, different schools, different homes. Um, In all of that, there's an invitation to just listen, to be still, to listen to the Spirit, to ask for his help. Um, How will the Spirit alert you to the people who cross your path, who you might be able to... to, um, to share the reality of God's love in Christ with. Um, so, so listen to the Spirit, and then just, just another way um, to apply this, and we talked about this some during our Hope Deep Dive, but I was reminded of this because, you know, Paul talks about the helmet of salvation here. In 1 Thessalonians, he talks about the helmet of hope of salvation. And there he says that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Thessalonians. Um, That is a view that you will hold on to only to the extent that you're wearing the helmet. You know that? Like, um, if the helmet's just hanging in your closet, you're going to look at the circumstances of your life, and you're going to begin to think, well, yeah, God has destined me for wrath. Look at how, um, yeah, how hard the world is. Like, look at how, look at how much difficulty and pain is introduced into my life and into the lives of these people I love. Um, 
You can only trust that. You can only hope when you're wearing this helmet of salvation. So family, just like take it out of your closet and put it on. Um, And then remember that because the scope of God's salvation is so broad, so broad, we have reason to hope for everyone. We have reason not to give up on anyone. I wonder, and you might even call them to mind right now, like who are the people who you are, um, who you've written off? This is a good question to ask as we um, start to enter into another election season. Who, who are the people who you've written off? Who are the people who you've given up hoping for? And what would it look like for you to start hoping again for them, for them? And if you've given up on yourself, don't do that. Don't do that. This helmet of salvation is yours. It's for you. Which is a way of saying that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is for you. God is for you. All right. Series over. <laughs>